this is a faithful saying, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. I'm Jason Garcia, and this is Faithful Sayings. Well, good morning, and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm going to be in John chapter 17 to begin with. If you have a Bible, I want to be turning over to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to start this morning. I'd like to invite you to visit our website at leonvalleychurch.org and poke around there and see if you can find some articles that might be useful to you, some other study resources, other broadcasts such as this one can be found there as well. This morning we're going to be thinking about false standards of truth. It was a few weeks ago, I think, that we did a study on hindrances of, of truth-seeking, things that got, get in the way of, of, our, of our study and when we're trying to discern the truth, attitudes, or people, and we nailed down some specific examples. Uh, this morning, though, I want to think, uh, think about false standards of truth, so things that are often held up as authoritative or uh, the standard of truth, uh, a measuring stick of truth, if you will, that according to the biblical perspective, I think are illegitimate because Jesus teaches us in John chapter 17 that there is that there is only one standard. And if you read in John 17, in verse 17, Jesus says this, John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And so in the context there, Jesus is praying. John 17 records the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed that we have preserved for us. And he is speaking of his disciples there. He's saying, sanctify them in your truth, Lord, in your word. He says specifically, your word is truth. So a lot of folk in the world talk about having the truth uh, when it's evident by what they say, you know, and they can't give book, chapter, and verse for whatever their contention is, whatever they're contending the truth to be. And Jesus is telling us, again, specifically, thy word or God's word is truth. So in just a few words, he is stating the dependability of God, the accuracy, uh, the integrity of his scripture, of his Bible, his teaching. And so that is the ultimate standard, really the only standard of truth when it comes to spirituality and our religious thinking. It is the only guide that we have to understand God. And, of course, I understand and know that Paul names Romans in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul will name that the creation as that which reveals God, and that's, that's true. You know, he says they're there without excuse for what is known about God is evident to them. It's been made known to them and all people from the beginning through what has been made. And so we can look at creation, Paul is saying, and we can understand something about God. Uh, but insofar as... Uh, a way of life and and how he expects us to live and worship him, uh, those things are going to be found in his will and his scripture that he's left for us. So, in a sense, people are set apart by false doctrine and practice, uh, but also they are set apart or sanctified by the truth. And that's what Jesus is praying here. He's praying that the apostles would be set apart by their acceptance and adherence. And belief in the truth as opposed to false doctrines, right? The truth 
is what unites us, is what sanctifies us, uh, but it is also what divides us. There's lots of examples in the book of Acts as the apostles and Paul especially are going on uh, his missionary journeys. And of course, they're encountering all kinds of people in every city throughout the ancient world in Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia. And on one occasion, uh, specifically that speaks, I think, to our lesson this morning in Acts chapter 17, when he comes to a place called Berea, uh, so so much of you know, his routine was, you know, find, find Jews, go into the synagogue, and sometimes he would be well received and sometimes he wasn't. He had just come from Thessalonica in this case, where he was chased out of town, and he would meet violent opposition in a lot of cases. But when he came to this Berea, this city called Berea, it says in Acts 17 of the people there, when he goes into the synagogue of the Jews and begins teaching, it says, These, verse 11, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore many of them believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. So here we have this example of accepting the truth, receiving the truth with great eagerness, receiving the word with great eagerness, the Holy Spirit says, through Luke and Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. So that is an example then of being sanctified by the truth. They tested what Paul was saying. They went to the word of God. They wanted to see if what he was really speaking was the truth, and they confirmed it by the word. And of course, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that uh, the apostles had special authority to work miracles, just as Jesus did to confirm the word that was spoken, uh, being spoken by them. And so here, these people are set apart and sanctified by the truth. Whereas previously in that chapter, if you go back and read verses one through nine, and we, that account of Paul and Thessalonica, uh, there are people again who rejected utterly wholesale re- rejection and run him out of town because he is teaching the truth of God. So in a sense, they were set apart also by their rejection of the truth and their false and their their maintaining false positions, false doctrines. So really all people, everybody who has access to the word of God can have the truth, can learn the truth, to believe it and and obey it. Uh, it's not relegated to just a special group of people. You know, Paul tells the church in Ephesus that when you read what I'm writing to you, you can understand, you can understand my insight, he says, specifically into the gospel, into the mystery of, of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, if memory serves, uh, but you can cross-check that for me. Uh, so in our society, in our, in our day and time, I mean, we have iPads and iPhones and laptops and the internet. I mean, we just, we could access the Bible through any of those means. I mean, we just have unprecedented access to it. Whereas, you know, we go back and wind back the clock a few hundred years and, and you know, there weren't even that many Bibles in, in print. There couldn't be. The technology didn't exist. And of course, we know the story of the Gutenberg Press and, and all that history and making the Word of God more readily available to, to people in different languages. And it just becomes more and more available and accessible as, as time moves forward. So we just really don't have any excuse not to have uh, knowledge of the truth, the Word of God, because I have a Bible in my lap this morning. I have a shelf right next to me that's full of other translations. Uh, 
uh, in English and, and, and other languages. We just, again, have unprecedented access. But yet, we give so little attention, generally speaking, we give so little attention to the contents of the book. I mean, we could talk about it being the truth all day long and understand what Jesus is saying in John seventeen seventeen. But if we don't ever do anything about it, it's not going to do us any good. And it is the only standard of truth. It is the only standard of truth. So, now then, let's talk about some false standards. Our subject this morning, false standards of truth. Some folks believe something to be true or right or authoritative or acceptable to God simply because they've always done it. Tradition, if you will, is another word for that. So, that would be a false standard of truth. A thing is neither right nor wrong simply because we have always done it. It could be okay. It could be acceptable. Uh, but the fact that we have maybe done it traditionally for a long time doesn't mean it's right. So the Bible speaks of good traditions and bad traditions. And we're not going to launch into a whole nother study on traditions this morning. I think we actually have another broadcast uh, previously, you can find our website about that. If not, I'll do one soon. But just to take for uh, an example, Mark chapter seven. Here's an example of of a bad tradition: Jesus taking the Pharisees to task over wanting his disciples to wash their hands and uh, some other things that he names in the context. But he says in verse nine, "You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God." In order to keep your tradition, for Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. And he goes on to describe specifically what they're doing. But just to make the point here of a bad tradition, these Pharisees have been had this tradition of Corbin that they had exercised for years, and that's what Jesus is speaking of if you go to Mark chapter 7. And he's condemning them for that tradition. He says, You're in fact setting aside the word of God. If you look in verse 8, he says, you neglect the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. Uh, so just because they had always done it, washed their hands before they before they ate, that's a, that's a good thing in and of itself, right? But they were saying, unless you do that, you couldn't be right with God. And so we see where that takes us, right? Just because even if something is good in, and we've always done it, uh, when we say, you need to do this in order to be right with God. When God says, no, that doesn't matter, uh, then we sin. And Jesus is saying, you, you're neglecting the command of God or you're usurping the authority of God by your own tra- tradition. Um, but there's also good traditions too. And Paul will speak of, of those to uh, the churches in the epistles. Thessalonica, for example, he will say, uh, whatever you received from us, either by whatever traditions you received from us in, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And so you can cross-reference that, and there's other places where Paul will mention these traditions uh, that the apostles had had handed down. And he is saying these are binding, these are things, these are good traditions that you need to to hold to and always do, uh, but the fact remains that you know we can't we can't ever safely assume that our forefathers were infallible. The apostles had special authority, and they're talking about special 
binding traditions that they had handed down. Uh, but the Pharisees, conversely, in Mark chapter 7, were talking about something that their ancestors had done. Uh, and in fact, that's that's what they will say. And when they're quoted in Mark chapter 7, uh, they say, Why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? And so they readily, readily acknowledged themselves that there was a human tradition. There was no divine authority behind it, uh, though they believed that there was simply because uh, the elders and their ancestors had done it. But uh, but that didn't make it right. So a thing is neither wrong nor right simply because we've always done it. That's a false standard of truth. And I think we use that the term always uh, rather loosely when we're referring to a practice that's 30, 50 maybe even 100 years old, um, you know, the gap between the early church and the practice of uh, the church today is spanned not by succession and not by just doing what our forefathers did, but it's it's by the, by the seed, which is the Word of God. That's what we want to give people. And there are good traditions, expedient ones that we can use uh, to meet those, uh, commands that were given, but simply having done something for a while or a long time by or always in our perspective, we've just always done something this way doesn't make it doesn't make it right. Number two, a thing is neither wrong nor right because denominations do it. So we might get it in our minds and we look around uh, at other at other churches, other congregations. And we say, well, they're doing it, or the majority of them are doing this practice or worshiping in this way, uh, so it must be okay. Well, again, that's that's not the standard, right? What other people are doing or even what the majority is doing is not the standard of truth. We might say the majority is not the authority, if you will, to remember this this point. So we should wisely hesitate to adopt a procedure, I think, really, that's common among uh, those in those in error, especially, just because most of the people, if any, if anything should be a red flag to us, it is what the majority is doing, right? Because broad is the way to destruction. There are many who find it, and uh, narrow is the path to light and the life. And there are few who find it. So, Christians and God's people will always be in the minority. Uh, so. Uh, and again, I don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That I don't want to err on the other side and say, well, just look for what a few people are doing, and that's right, because uh, that's that's not the point that I'm making at all. But I'm just simply saying that the majority, from a biblical perspective, is often the red flag. Um, we have somehow developed maybe a negative philosophy that a thing again is not good, or a thing is wonderful, even on the opposite end of the spectrum, just based on the conduct of other churches and, and denominations. Um, but that's not the solution. That's not a safe way to arrive at any solution. Again, God's Word has to settle the matter. We want to look in Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And so many of these passages that we're going to be looking at essentially say the same thing because the Bible is just replete with this idea and this teaching that we must always go to it and always go to God's word to substantiate what we're doing, to, to have to, to, to know that it is the truth that we are believing and practicing 
and it can affirm this for us. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Uh, so that phrase, doing something in the name of, is authoritative. I, you know, uh, policemen, police officers uh, pull people over or uh, even you might even hear like in the movies or even heard in your own experience, someone say stop. Uh, an officer may say stop in the name of the law. So um, and they, you know, they exercise should be exercising all that they do in the name of the law. Uh, meaning by the authority of the law, right? When they say stop in the name of the law, they're appealing to a higher authority other than themselves. In other words, it's not me who's telling you to stop. It's the law of the land and that you need that you need to obey. So Paul is using a similar phrase. And I think we can, I just offer that illustration to help us connect with it. Uh, we need to do all things in the name of or by the authority of Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of or with the authority of Christ. God's word is the solution. Not what the majority is doing and not even what the minority is doing, but only God's God's word. Another false standard of truth is that we try to justify something to be right uh, because of the end. So we might say the end justifies the means, and then that, you know, and if the if the end is okay, then then this must be true. Whatever it is that we want to believe or practice must be true. <clears throat> but again, are we making an assumption in that? I think think that we are. That we can infallibly infallibly as people as humans predict the end absolutely and utterly and completely as as God can see the final analysis and end game of what we do and and believe uh, so God obviously his vision is infinite compared compared to ours and compared to him we can't see beyond our noses and he has revealed a pattern of worship a plan of salvation a plan for his church to work in the world and to evangelize the world and he had a purpose in mind for that. He had an end that he desired in giving us this pattern for all these all these things. And when we get it in our minds that we maybe have a more efficient or more economical scheme of doing things, then that's presumption on our, our part. And we are sitting in judgment on divine wisdom. And this was something that, uh, this was a principle I think that David understood uh, well by his own experience. And it's recorded for us in a couple of places. Second Samuel 6 is one place. First Chronicles 13 is, is another. Uh, you know, this episode, this incident where he is moving the ark uh, to Jerusalem, he transports it, of course, with a lot of people. There was a lot of furnishings and trappings along with the, the tabernacle and, and moving moving the ark. And I don't remember if he's moving all those things in, in this case or if it's just the ark. But at any rate, it says in First Chronicles 13 that when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. So nothing really special about that verse in verse 9 uh, other than what it is said regarding how the ark is being, uh, what is said regarding how the ark is being transported. Uh, if you go back to... I think it's maybe Numbers 14 or in Exodus, there's specific instructions given 
about how the ark was to be moved and all the, the furnishings of, of the tabernacle. They were to be put on poles. They had rings uh, built onto each of those things specifically designed to run poles through. And then specific people even uh, were allowed, uh, were meant to carry uh, those those trappings on the poles using those the rings. And But here we see uh, that the ark is being pulled on a cart by oxen. And we think, well, what's the big deal about that? When we keep reading, when this poor man named Uzzah tries to uh, uh, handle the ark and hold the ark in place because it nearly tumps over from the cart, it says in verse 10 that the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and so he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died therefore before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. And so here we see something that looks like just a minor detail. God had specified to Moses, this is how I want you to transport everything. And David, of course, would have had that law in his possession as king and been expected to understand that. And here's Uzzah trying to do a good thing from keeping the ark from tumping over. And God strikes him dead for it. And we might be left wondering... Why, why in the world did that happen if he was trying to do a good thing and was it really that big of a deal to to just transport the ark on a cart pulled by oxen rather than using the poles uh, put through the rings as God had said well that's that's the issue God had said this is how I want you to do it and the Israelites had always done that evidently up, up until this this point and if we read further in First Chronicles 15, the ark does eventually get to uh, Jerusalem. That takes the wind out of David's sails a little bit when he, when God kills Uzzah. And, and the text even says that David was angry with God, but he didn't really have a right to be. And David comes to understand that later in a couple of chapters in First Chronicles 15. Uh, begin reading in verse uh, 13. First Chronicles 15 and verse 13. Uh, well, let's back up to... Verse 12, he says, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring the ark of the Lord of God to Israel. So now David is, is seeking out the right people to do this. And he says, Because you did not carry it, verse 13, you did not carry it at the first. And the Lord our God made an outburst on us, speaking of Uzzah being struck dead. For we did not seek him according to... The ordinance. So what does David come to realize here? The reason God made an outburst on us, the reason Uzzah lost his life, was because we did not seek God according to his ordinance or his command and follow through with his instructions. We try to do things our own way. Even in this minor minor detail, seemingly minor detail, of using a cart and oxen as opposed to uh, poles and rings to transport the ark. And the reason I think this serves as an example to that the that the end does not justify the means. So this may have been, in David's mind, an expedient way, an economical way of getting the ark to Jerusalem, uh, to the destination where again, he wants to eventually build a temple and gather materials for his son Solomon. And he's got he's got all these good plans in mind, and and these are actually things that God wants him to do. And the moment he thinks that he has a good way or an efficient way to accomplish something, 
that just so happens again to violate the standard, the one standard that ultimately he should have been going by, um, somebody suffers for it. And David comes to understand, I was presumptuous. I did not seek, we did not seek him according to the commandment. So we just need to trust God's wisdom in all things, even in what we might perceive to be inconsequential details uh, in, in the scripture. If he's, he doesn't need to say all the different ways not to do something, right? He had just said, this is how you transport the ark. He didn't go through and say, he never said, don't put it on a cart pulled by oxen. He never said, don't do it this way. Don't do it that way. Don't, don't do it this way. And just make a list. He just said, you're going to put the poles through the rings. And then that's how you'll carry the trappings of the tabernacle and the ark. And David got out of his lane when he thought he had a better idea. He will pray Later in Psalm 19 and verse 13, uh, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be requited of great transgression. And so David understood and, and prays and we should pray, Lord, keep us from presumptuous sin. Let us never take it upon ourselves to decide what we think is best. If we have an end goal in mind, maybe the goal is shared even by God to uh, help needy brethren to to spread the gospel, of course. But even in those things, taking care of widows, for example, First Timothy five, all good things, all of those align with God's plan and that and things that He wants us to do, just as He wanted David to take the ark to Jerusalem. But the method and the means of getting there also has to be according to His standard. The method and the means of providing for our brethren and providing for uh, widows indeed, as Paul mentions there in 1 Timothy 5, or taking care of orphan, orphans, James 1 and verse 27. All of, those, all of those things have to be done on his terms. And we can't just go about them any way that we want. And maybe we'll get into some more detail in another, another study on that. But David's prayer in Psalm 19, keep me from presumptuous sins, would keep us out of a lot of trouble if we remembered those words and always sought to seek God, seek Him according to the ordinance, to use David's words. So finally, and lastly, a, uh, a false standard is um, a thing that a thing is neither wrong nor right. A thing is not the standard simply because it evokes opposition or a claim from people. So some things we we do will be applauded. Some things we do will be heavily opposed. Uh, but just because they are, uh, you know, applauded or opposed, either, either one, that doesn't mean that they're that doesn't mean that they're right. That what we've chosen to do is is right. Paul asked the question in Galatians one and verse ten. He says, "Do I seek to please men?" And he says, "If I yet please men, I should not be a servant of Christ." And so. Again, Paul remembers the ultimate standard in Christ and his word. A preacher once said that he knew a certain action was right, but if he took a stand on it, he might cause trouble, quote-unquote. And so there's unnecessary trouble that needs to be avoided to be sure. But if his analysis of the situation was correct, there was trouble already in the camp. You know, the, the scenario that he was thinking and, and describing was a time uh, when someone needed to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted with with the Scripture. 
but he didn't want to upset the apple cart because speaking the truth and holding up the standard was was going to to do just that uh, and make a lot of people upset. Again, the majority can't be the authority. If, if we know we're going to meet opposition, that can't sway us if what we have is is the truth. I mean, Paul was drug out of cities and beaten and stoned and left for dead. I mean, he was, again, violently opposed. But that didn't mean what he was doing was wrong. Of course it wasn't. He was trying to spread the gospel and teach people the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember that as, as well. And conversely, just because we are approved or receive accolades from people for a certain behavior doesn't mean our behavior is right or that we are practicing the truth. No man loves truth who shows disrespect for God's word. That's the bottom line. We need to teach that to our children. We need to shout it from the housetops. We need to apply it to our own selves and religious practices and pursue it with all of our might. It is egotistical and presumptuous to hold someone in contempt when they're asking you to support by the authoritative word of God whatever it is you're teaching or doing or saying. God's word is not the standard of truth only when it suits our purpose. And we need to be careful of that kind of bias. We need to pray that God will give us courage and honesty and a hunger for His truth and banish selfish concern, banish creeds that have been used by men to wrongly justify their practices. So let's pray and and ask God to help us search His Word carefully trusting and knowing that all the answers to our problems are found there. Let us pray that he'll open our eyes that we can see and open our ears that we can hear and our hearts so that we can understand. We'll end with this in 1 Peter 1 and verse 24. Peter says, All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. 1 Peter 1 and verse 24. Well, again, I thank you for tuning in this morning. I enjoyed studying with you. I strive to be a good student of God's word. I would love to study with you in person if that's your desire. Please visit our website, leonvalleychurch.org. You can find some contact information there if that's your desire and other resources and other radio broadcasts like this. Hope to study with you again next week. Please tune in at the same time, 10.30 a.m. Sunday morning right here on KTEM. Once again, I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.